0: This is Maureen Milliken, and this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. A podcast, that's still having technical di- yeah, difficulties. Yeah, we're having some technical difficulties. In fact, we had so many wow. on our last episode that, that we've re recorded it and reposted it. Yes. Because it's a good story and we didn't want the technical difficulties to be distracting. And that's episode 32? Yes. Malaga Island. Yes. The main secret shame. And our it, secret shame. And speaking our of technical of, difficulties. Yeah, I was going to say, speaking of secret shames, I fucked up, I think. We still aren't clear on what. Cause the problems I'm it's a learning curve for us uh, yeah whatever there's the original and the one we recorded yeah. so there's two episodes and the second one is named malaga It is episode 32b they're basically the same i think we're a little more ranty on the first one we'll probably be more ranty yeah same script though i went by the same script so it'll be and the sound yeah. is better so if you want to hear the story with which is worth hearing listen to that one So, we have an update for episode 10. It's hard to believe it was that. 11. Episode 11. Well, it was still far back. It's hard to believe it was that far back, though. I know. In February. February 5th it came out. The New Hampshire serial killer. He was the cross-country serial killer. And it's a complicated story. I won't go into all the details. But at the time, they didn't know what his real name was. And he was going by Bob Evans. Probably Mm -hmm. inspired by a roadside restaurant. They announced last week... But they discovered through DNA who he was. He is a man named Terry Peter Rasmussen, born in Denver in 1943. He had a wife and three kids and disappeared in 1974. A wife and four kids. They had already been divorced, and they were living in Arizona. And some of his kids have spent decades trying to track him down. Through DNA, police, finally, I'm sure oh, it's a long... maybe they put DNA into the... You know how when people are looking for someone, I think... Yeah, okay, sorry. The police actually approached them. Ah. Some of the children had been looking on genealogy websites, and none of the stories about this are clear. Maybe it's too complicated, and hopefully somebody will do a story in the near future about how the police actually got to Terry Rasmussen. But they approached his children... And asked one of them to give a DNA sample. He had three daughters and a son. The son agreed to give a DNA sample. And it turned out he was their father. That Bob Evans, Gordon, whatever, whoever, all his different names was their father. The serial killer. And you can listen to episode 11 to get that whole story. It's a very complicated story. DNA and genealogy play a huge role in the entire thing. But it's nice that they have finally figured out who Can the guy is. Can you imagine is. though, you're looking for your father. And you find out he's a cross-country serial killer, a child molester. I knew somebody killed his own children. The father least. left the family when she was a kid and she never saw him. And well, apparently he was, he was in town. He was just like the town drunk that people used to see lying around the street. Oh, like in that Bruce Springsteen song. And son. no one told her that, that I think someone later and. Her teen years was like, you know that. No, I'll cut it out. I just want to know. You don't know her. She's a friend of a friend. Okay. In any case, so that's the update on that. We also have a donor of the week. A very nice donor. John Whitson of Ohio. Nice. Has made a nice monthly donation. And uh, we're not totally clear on whether he's a fan of Crime and Stuff or our other podcast, Groovy Tube. I think he's a fan of both. Or both, although he did send us an email about Groovy Tube requesting that in the future we do Gilligan's Island. And if you don't listen to Groovy Tube, this season is yeah, the Crimes. Yeah, you don't know what you're missing. Right. And this season is the Crimes of the Brady Bunch. Next yeah. season is the Mod Squad. Then probably Room 222. Yes. So he sent us a He's nice... A master criminal. In fact, he may be one of the ones, if you donate on Patreon as a master criminal, you are in a drawing to be a special Which guest is, on the to, show. What do you have to do to be a master criminal? Twenty-five dollars a month. Okay. For instance, if he were the special guest, we'd find a nice Ohio murder to talk about, or maybe he'd have a, something he'd like to talk he about. Might. I seem to remember some Ohio crime where some guy dismembered a bunch of people in his apartment, and hmm. I heard about it at some mystery conference. I'm I was. Sure there's lots of them. So, Ohio one of those. But thanks, John, and also you, our John. one of our first ever donors and one of our loyal listeners who frequently comments on our Facebook page and Twitter Karen from Oklahoma raised her donation. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Karen. Karen Alden. Also, she frequently gives us good tips and advice, and so we yes. appreciate Karen listening. So, we wanted to thank Karen for that. We appreciate our donors very much. Just think if we had a ton of money, we wouldn't have problems like we had with our episode 30. I would hope not. So, should I get on with today's show? Yes, please do. I'm excited because I just am. Because I'm excited, too. And I'll say this is a case that is recently in the news. One thing we like to do is take something that's in the news that you may have heard a little bit about and elaborate on it for you. Have. I'll start with a caveat that I like to use those Latin words once in a not. Caveat. Whenever something makes as much news as this does, there can be misinformation and it gets repeated over and over and over again. And it's hard to parse what's true and what isn't. My major sources for this were the Boston Globe, which covered it extensively, and there were a couple other sources I used that I'll mention when I take stuff from them. The biggest source is Michelle Carter, the woman convicted of the crime in the story. Her words, she's a young woman who's very attached to social media, and her words actually provide the basis of the story. But why don't I get into it and you'll see. The relationship between Massachusetts teenagers Conrad Roy and Michelle Carter is one that only could have happened in the 21st century. Many would also say the same of Conrad Roy's death. Conrad Roy III of Mattapoisett, Massachusetts, which is on the South Shore on the ocean, had graduated from Old Rochester Regional High School in June 2014 with a 3.8 grade point average. It had only taken him three weeks to earn his boat captain's license from Northeast Maritime Institute, which is quite an accomplishment for an 18-year-old. And he worked for his father's marine salvage company. His father's a tugboat captain who was one of the first boats on the scene of the Uh. February 2009 crash on the Hudson, the Sully, Sullenberger crash. Conrad had lived with his father after his parents divorce a couple years before, but the relationship became strained and he moved in with his mother in 2014. He still seemed to aspire to be like his father even though their relationship was strained. Well, yeah, that's always the way. Yeah, And he was proud of his captain's license, as well he should have been. But he was also on his way to Fitchburg State University in the fall on a scholarship. He was also a good athlete. He played baseball. Despite all that, because as we know, success and having friends have nothing to do with mental illness, Conrad suffered from depression that surfaced around the same time as his parents' divorce. He'd tried suicide in October 2012, and possibly some other times, but this was the most notable one, overdosing on acetaminophen, but almost immediately he had second thoughts and called a friend, told her what he did, and said he was scared and wanted her to call his mother, who had been at home shortly before he did that. The friend did, and he was taken to the hospital and taken care of. He promised his mother he'd never do it again. The friend, Ariana, and by the way, some of the friends I mentioned in this, I'm just mentioning by first names. Their names are easily available. There's a couple 48 Hours episodes. Some of them testified at the trial later. But I just feel, just for the sake of this podcast, I'm just going to say their first yeah, names. it doesn't matter. Yeah. The friend, Ariana, said on 48 Hours Mystery, an August 5th episode of it, that she felt his suicide attempt was more a cry for help than a serious suicide attempt but he definitely needed help, she said. She also said that he talked a lot about his issues, the darkness that he felt, but he had trouble explaining it to her. Her attitude and Michelle Carter's are a sad contrast. In the months before his July 12, 2014 death, his family felt he was beginning to rebound from the serious mental health issues that had dogged him in recent years, and besides depression, it was social anxiety and some other issues. Michelle Carter, 17 in July 2014, lived in Plainville, Mass., about 40 miles northwest of Connerville, Seacoast Town. She was an honor roll student at King Philip High School and played softball. She'd been voted most likely to brighten your day by classmates. Hmm. But Carter also had mental health issues. She'd had an eating disorder and reportedly had either caught herself or at least threatened to or told people she did. She had been on antidepressants and at the time of Roy's death was on a medication for impulse control and other issues. She had spent some time in McLean Psychiatric Hospital in Massachusetts in June of 2014. Her softball coach, Ed McFarlane, said she was well-liked. Quote, I've never seen her do a mean thing, he told 48 Hours. Friends described her as outgoing and friendly, but also desperate for attention and reassurance, and overly aggressive in her attempts to befriend people. And we'll talk about that more in detail in a little while. The Plainville Sun Chronicle reported that Carter was described by those who knew her as, quote, the girl that cried wolf, unquote, who had a tendency to over-exaggerate things so much it was hard knowing whether she was telling the truth or not. While Michelle and Conrad lived relatively near each other in Massachusetts, less than an hour's drive away, they'd met in Florida in 2012 when they were both visiting relatives there. The relationship that continued in Massachusetts was a virtual one, One Michelle's attorney, Joe Cattado, called, quote, a long-term texting relationship. They also communicated through Facebook and Twitter and probably other social media, but the stuff that's been publicized is texts, Facebook, and Twitter. His family didn't really know her. His mother met her once at a baseball game and didn't see her again until Conrad's Wake. They had reportedly, in the year prior to his death, not seen each other physically at all. Mm -hmm. Michelle Carter's insecurities are clear from some of their early exchanges that were made public during her later trial. In a Facebook exchange in August 2012, the year they met, she begs Conrad to post something, anything, on her Facebook wall. And I have to believe that so her friends will see that she has oh, a cute boyfriend. I get it. I get it. She also hounds him to charge his phone so he can text her, an exchange that goes on and on for a excruciating long time and only two teenagers in heavy like would have the patience for. The conversations that take place in August and September 2012 are inane. Typical teenage teasing though they're also a little poignant. For instance, him trying to nail her down on visiting him in person and offering to let her come sit in the boat as he coaches rowing practice. He taught young kids rowing. She seems reluctant to visit and puts him off. But the 2012 exchanges take a chilling turn in October when he messages her that he just got out of the hospital after a week because he tried to kill himself. That's the suicide attempt I spoke of earlier. He says he's planning to do it again that night. She seems shocked at first and tries to talk him out of it. After a lengthy back and forth he tells her, trust me you don't know what it's like to be me and gone through what I've gone through. She begs him to talk to her about it, but he refuses. He tells her he has two plans, sleeping pills or hanging, and he's going to do it, and she can't stop him. She inexplicably asks him what his third plan is, I'm not (laughs) sure why. She tells him she loves him, begs him not to do it, but after the exchange goes on, she gives in. Her final message tells him how amazing he is and how happy he made her when they met in Florida. I will really miss you, babe she says. Hmm. He obviously didn't kill himself then, but there's also no indication she tried to get hold of anyone in his family or the police to stop him from doing it. Maybe she was using reverse psychology. Possibly. And he's pretty adamant he was going to kill himself that night. She seems to simply accept that it's his choice with something like which college he's going to or some other life choice he would make. The two apparently kept up their virtual relationship, only seeing each other three or four times in person since they'd met in Florida, And as I said, not at all apparently the year before Conrad's death in 2014. Michelle called Conrad her boyfriend to friends, although her friends said they had never met him. And by friends, I mean classmates in her high school. Conrad's family was aware of her existence, but didn't consider her Conrad's girlfriend. And as I said, his mother only met her once before his funeral. And Conrad did talk about her. By the summer of 2014, Michelle's attempts to befriend some popular girls at school had been rebuffed, and her attention seemed to zero in on Conrad, who was still struggling mightily with his mental health issues. YouTube journal videos he made around that time show a sweet boy who is very hard on himself. A perfectionist full of self-doubt who is constantly and obsessively trying to talk himself out of disliking himself. In the most recent 48 Hours Mystery episode on the case, his mother said his relationship with his father was strained, and we'll talk a little more about that later. And while the show doesn't mention it, his father isn't interviewed, In February 2014, police responded to a call at the house, at his father's house, at which Conrad had apparently been hit by his father hard enough to cause facial injuries, and that's apparently when he Mm. moved in with his mother. And we'll talk a little more about that later. Mm. I found it interesting the 48 Hours didn't reference that at all. In the weeks before his death, Conrad and Michelle exchanged more than a 1,000 text messages. Michelle at first urged Conrad not to kill himself and seek professional help. But, just as with the 2012 Facebook exchange, she seemed to easily change her thinking when he resisted her suggestions of help and was soon encouraging him to do it. She later, it's not clear when told a therapist she was overwhelmed by Roy's problems, her attorney said. And it's not clear if she told her therapist this before he killed himself or after. It's one of those things that's reported in different places in different ways, and her attorney said it. It's hard to find the context. I didn't watch the entire trial live stream, as some people did, so I have to depend on reports for the context of some of this stuff. Joe Cataldo, her attorney's take on it, was that Conrad was so insistent on killing himself, quote, He had, in fact, brainwashed her to the point where she's now accepting his idea. Conrad had done Google searches about carbon monoxide poisoning and other ways to commit suicide, as well as things like whether committing suicide makes you happy. (laughs) How are you going to be happy if you're dead? Well, I think a lot of teenagers have romantic ideas and are very impressionable, and I think a lot of them don't realize that they're gone. They haven't had to confront the abyss of nothingness yet. They picture themselves being like Huck Finn or whoever and watching their own funeral and watching everybody from somewhere which is why that netflix show 13 reasons why i think that was some of the criticism by professionals was that it i mean i have my own feelings about it i didn't see the show but it plays into that idea that you know uh, the premise of that show is that she made these cassette tapes which i find weird because i think it's present day so i don't know but to all the people who she blamed for her suicide and they all listened to them, and felt bad or whatever. I mean, I might be misrepresenting it because I didn't watch it. But it gives weight to that thing like, oh, they're all going to be sorry. I think the way a lot of kids think about it is, and maybe adults too in some ways, that they're going to reap the satisfaction of people feeling bad. And I'm not trying to diminish the pain. I'm not trying to diminish Conrad Roy's pain. And later you'll see some of that, his pain. But I do think that Maybe it's just so overwhelming that they don't understand how final it is and how they're not going to be there. Their brains are still developing, and Although they're very... some people might understand that, but I think sometimes when you get really depressed, it's not that. Although I think with a lot of Right, you just want bad. it to end. Yeah. Sorry. So, But in any case, and we'll see more of the nuances of this as we go on. So at some point in early July, it's not clear exactly when, though by some accounts it's July 10th, others it's earlier. And unknown apparently to his family and others... He tried to kill himself by overdosing on Tylenol and NyQuil, but it didn't work or even harm him enough, apparently, for anyone to notice. Hm. On July 12, 2014, the day he died, Conrad went with his mother and two younger sisters to the beach, then took the girls out for ice cream. He seemed to his sisters a little anxious as he texted throughout the day, but no worse than usual. He was texting somebody they weren't sure who. His mother sent him 48 hours, they walked on the beach, and he seemed to be nervous about whether he'd go to college or not. Hmm. Even though he had a scholarship and had been accepted, she reassured him that no matter what happened, it would all work out. He gave nothing to indicate she said that he was planning anything or was despondent. In early evening, he told his mother he was going to see a friend. She asked if he'd be home for dinner, and he said, I don't think so. That's the last time they ever talked. He drove his pickup truck to the Fairhaven Kmart, where he parked in a remote area of the parking lot. He cranked up a gasoline-powered water pump and generator in the cab of his truck. He knew it would spew deadly carbon monoxide into the cab. He closed the windows. His mother, Lynn, had become increasingly more frantic as the night wore on, texting him about 10.30 p.m. and then later that night about when he was going to get home. He wasn't the kind of boy to stay out all night or to not contact his mother or to not answer her texts. She went to bed wondering where he was. The next morning, she asked his friend, Ariana, who went out looking for him. They checked with his father. He hadn't seen him either. Police found his body around 5.30 p.m. that day on July 13th. He was wearing sunglasses and a Boston Strong t-shirt. An autopsy revealed the levels of carbon monoxide in his blood were 71%. A healthy person his age would normally have levels from 1 to 3%. Mm -hmm. Dr. Farrell Sandler, a state medical examiner, testified later that a person exposed to carbon monoxide would begin coughing within two minutes and laps into unconsciousness after 13 minutes. A person typically dies after 20 minutes of exposure. I don't understand why this happened to him. His close friend, Ariana, tearful three years after it happened, said on 48 Hours, July 12th, had been to Michelle. His last text had been at 6.25 p.m. the night he died to Michelle Carter. Okay, I'm almost there. But that wasn't the last communication with her. After that, beginning at 6.28 p.m., he spent more than an hour and a half on the phone with her. First 43 minutes, beginning at 6.28, and he called her back at 7.12, and the last 47 minutes of Conrad Roy's life were spent on the phone with Michelle Carter. Michelle had had a busy couple of days before her friend Conrad died. Two days before he killed himself, she told friends that he was missing and that she was worried. And remember, this was easy for her to do because she lived in Plainville. He lived... he had lived in Mattapoisette, I think that was with his dad. I think his mom might have lived in Fairhaven. Some accounts say he was from Mattapoisett. Some say he was from Fairhaven. They're right next to each other. Yeah. So, But in any case, it was easy for her to do. None of her friends knew who he was. She told a couple friends that he was missing and she was worried. And this is despite the fact that she was in constant contact with him that day. And it may have been the same day he took the NyQuil and Tylenol overdose that didn't work. It's hard to say. Conrad's missing. They can't find him anywhere. She texted a friend, Samantha, who later testified in her trial. I'm losing all Hope that he's even alive. By the way, when I read her texts, which I'm going to be doing throughout this, <laughs> obviously texts don't have inflection. I'm trying not to have inflection, <laughs> but it's hard not to. So just keep in mind, any inflection is mine. She also asked Samantha if there was any way, quote, a portable generator can kill you somehow, unquote, because Conrad had told her he, her he was getting one from a store. Quote, I really didn't think anything of it, but I didn't go to work today, so I D K which is I don't know, and you're going to be hearing IDK a lot, so just remember it's I don't know. So IDK, why he would have got that stuff, she texted Samantha. (laughs) She texted her the next day, I was supposed to save him. He needed me. I let him down. I should have knew what he was saying was suspicious, and I should have called his mom or someone. I could have prevented this. Keep in mind that this is the day before Conrad died. I think she thought he'd killed himself. She added, just in case something did happen, I'm thankful that our last words were, I love you. And as I said, this was the day before he killed himself. And I just want to point out for some people who are questioning, like, if her friends were numb, again, they not only live that far apart, but generally, I can tell you as a newspaper uh, reporter and editor, suicides aren't generally reported in the paper. We'll hear, you know, an unattended death somewhere. And if it's a suicide, we generally don't report it unless it's a prominent person or it's done. Like if somebody shot themselves at City Hall or something, you would report it. So if he had died that day, there wouldn't really be any way for her friends to check it unless they're savvy about checking funeral homes for obits. And even those don't come for a few days later. So just in case people are kind of wondering how numb her friends may have been. Well, Conrad's body wasn't found until the afternoon of July 13th, the night he killed himself, July 12th. Michelle texted several friends saying he'd committed suicide. Hmm. She texted those friends that she was on the phone with him for 20 minutes as he died and that she heard sounds of, quote, a motor running and moaning. One girl, who wasn't close to Carter, yet was one of the first people she contacted, later testified that she was surprised to hear from her. I didn't know her well at all, the girl said in court. Michelle texted her the day Carter died, quote, Yeah, and I was on the phone talking to him when he killed himself. I heard him dying. He told me exactly what his plan was, Michelle told another friend. And he told me he loved me, and then he just stopped talking. I was talking to him on the phone when he killed himself, Liv. I heard him die. I just wish I got him more help, she texted yet another. And I find it not ironic, but very cynical that she keeps telling people she wished she had gotten help. And you'll hear later why that is. She also told Samantha that she didn't know he was going to use a generator to kill himself. Hmm. I'm so fucking stupid, she texted. The generator he got that other day, I think that was the noise I heard. I think he poisoned himself with it, and it's all my fault, because I should have known he was going to do that, and I should have stopped him. She also texted his sister, who was 14 the night he died. Now, keep in mind, his family didn't know until 20, almost 24 hours later that he was dead. After Michelle knew he was dead, asking her if she'd seen him because she couldn't get a hold of him. As the days went on, the text continued. Here's a roundup from BuzzFeed. She texted her friends about how Roy had left her a beautiful suicide letter that his mother read out to her. Quote, I'm going to Conrad's house to go through some of his things with his mom, and to get a suicide letter he wrote to me, she texted a friend, stressing that she was the only one he had left a note for. This isn't true. He'd left several suicide notes to different family members. It just means so much to me that I was special to him. His mom said I was the most important person in his life, she told her friend. Which... Wasn't true either. She told another friend that Roy's mother was keeping the letter for me and that his mother had asked her to come over to their house to take some of his things. Also not true. Roy's mother testified in court later that she did not ask Carter to come to their house and that she had given his letter to authorities. Carter also told friends that she hoped to get some of Roy's ashes after his cremation. He was cremated so it will be easier so we don't have to bury him, she texted Samantha. I may be getting some of his ashes, which is nice. That's morbid. Yes, Michelle also expressed feeling overwhelmed when Roy's mother talked to her about her new boyfriend and stuff, which never happened. She told her friends that she had promised Roy she would, quote, help his mom and sisters get through this, unquote, and that she wouldn't, quote, let them go through depression. But now his mom is depressed. I failed Conrad, she wrote in a text. She also told friends that Roy had refused to go with her to seek professional help together. I started giving up because nothing I did seemed to help him, she wrote to a friend. I could have stopped him, but I fucking didn't. She texted Samantha that she had her whole life planned out with Roy. He was going to graduate Fitchburg, and when I graduated the college I'm going to, we would live happily ever after on the ocean somewhere with our son, Conrad IV. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Now he's going to be something different, maybe something better, but I just don't think that's possible. He was my person. Now, I don't watch Glee, but some of that may sound familiar. It came from an episode after after Cory Monteith killed himself, and they worked it into a storyline. 48 Mm. Hours Mystery reported that several lines from Carter's text were direct cops from that episode, which aired in October 2013. That's so weird, though, that you would... It was kind of run... Uh, Well, uh... she's acting out of fantasy. (laughs) She also inundated Conrad's mother, Lynn who, as any mother would, blamed herself for her son's suicide, with texts of consolation and support. Oh, Jesus. She doesn't use punctuation, so it's hard to read some of these. I am so very sorry, Conrad meant so much to me, Carter texted Linroy. He was such a bright light, such a beautiful soul. Please stay strong. You didn't fail him, not even a little bit. You tried your hardest. I tried my hardest. Everyone tried their hardest to save him. But he had his mind set on taking his life. She reveled, according to many, in the attention his death and the role of grieving girlfriend was giving her, and posted constantly on Facebook and Twitter about it. Tom Gammel, who described himself in court as Conrad's best friend, said Conrad had never mentioned Michelle to him. The website dialed in, which got this information from court records and watching the live stream reported, when Gamble saw that Michelle was hosting a fundraiser in Conrad's memory in September 2014, a softball tournament called Homers for Conrad, in her town of Plainville, he thought it was odd. He asked her why it wasn't in the Fairhaven area and asked her if she could change the location so that it would be easier for Conrad's friends and family to take part. She responded, and I think this was a Facebook back and forth, by the way, Facebook messaging. She responded, I can't change it like, I already have made it up here and I have people advertising here like, this was my idea. I created it to be here. Gamal didn't press her on it. He shared the event on Facebook which apparently rubbed Michelle the wrong way. She messaged him, you're not taking credit for my idea though, right? I mean, I'm hosting it. Like, it's my idea. Meanwhile, Michelle was messaging her friends gleefully about how the fundraiser was boosting her popularity. Hey, I put homers for Conrad on Facebook, she texted a friend. I'm like famous now. Ha ha. Check it out. At the fundraiser, she relished attention from strangers. It felt bizarre to gamble and Roy's sisters who attended. After the fundraiser, which raised a couple thousand dollars, Michelle texted a friend. A girl I made friends with from the event messaged me today. She asked if I could help her because she saw that I'm like an advocate for mental illness now and I want to help save people any way I can. So I helped her and she said I saved her life. Just hearing that makes me feel like I can do so much more, that I'm going to be doing something good like it's all worth it. Before Conrad died, Michelle told him to delete all the text messages she had sent him. It was part of the plan. And she even texted him about it the evening he killed himself. Conrad deleted almost all the texts on his phone as he sat in his truck that night. Conrad deleted almost all the texts on his phone as he sat in his truck that night, except for the ones from Michelle. Interesting. So he deleted all the other texts. Yes, he deleted everything on his phone except for the the texts from her. When he was found dead, his cell phone was beside him. And you kind of wonder why he did that. Yeah. And Michelle's texts... Tell a chilling story. Uh. In the weeks leading up to Conrad's death, she frequently and repeatedly urged him to kill himself, helping him figure out plans and talked him out of any regrets he may have, including those about hurting his family. She badgered, bullied, and even guilt-tripped him into doing it. Here's a passage from June 19th that at first blush seems helpful. Michelle. But the mental hospital would help you. I know you don't think it would, but I'm telling you, if you give them a chance, they can save your life. Part of me wants you to try something and fail, just so you can get help. Conrad, it doesn't help. Trust me. Michelle, so what are you going to do then? Keep mean, all talk and no action, and every day go through saying how badly you want to kill yourself? Or are you going to try to get better? Conrad, I can't get better. I already made my decision. On July 3rd, they had this conversation. Michelle, are you going to do it tonight? Conrad, I'm going to try. Michelle, how hard are you going to try? Wow. Conrad, hard. Michelle continued to press him, asking him how he was going to do it. When he said he didn't know, she told him he wasn't serious about it. Michelle, how bad do you want it? Because if you want it bad, you should succeed. A week before he died, they had this conversation. I don't think I have it in me, Conrad texted. Michelle, I knew it. Conrad, I'm too scared. You're right. I don't have it in me. Then there was this. I'm not clear on the date, but apparently it's after the NyQuil and Tylenol OD didn't work. And this is from Michelle. So it didn't work? You said you wanted this bad. I knew you weren't going to try hard. I feel like such an idiot. Because you didn't even do anything. I poured my heart to you. You lied about the whole thing. You said you were going to go to the woods. I thought you really wanted to die, but apparently you don't. I just feel played and stupid. (laughs) It's so weird. I know. I know. It's, it's so, it's like, it's bizarre. like a teenager it's talking like, about somebody showing up at the soda shop. I only she's talking I about know. him killing himself. Michelle scolded him for purposefully, I think she means purposely, one of my peeves, uh, taking too little of the OD medications and suggested he take ten doses of Benadryl and a bottle of Tylenol. When he expressed reservations, she told him to hang yourself, jump off a building, stab yourself, I don't know, there's lots of ways. On July 7th. <sighs> Conrad texted her, how was your day? (laughs) Michelle responded, when are you doing it? Wow. During that conversation, he asked, if you were in my position, honestly, what would you do? She responds, I would get help. That's just me, though. When I have a serious problem like that, my first instinct is to get help because I know I can't do it on my own. But later that day, the pair discussed the best way for him to produce carbon monoxide. Maybe she might get help killing himself. Yeah, that could be. Sorry, right. No, I think she plays on the fact that she knows he's so resistant to getting help that, she can, that she's safe and saying yeah, that. And you'll see. Yeah. But later that day, the pair discussed the best way for him to produce carbon monoxide. Conrad said, Well, there's more ways to make CO. Google ways to make it. Then he texts, OMG. She texts, what? He texts, portable generator, that's it. On July 8th, she texts, so are you sure you don't want to kill yourself tonight? He texts, what do you mean, am I sure? She says, like, are you definitely not doing it tonight? He replies, IDK, yeah, I'll let you know. She texts, because I'll stay up with you if you want to do it tonight. He responds, another day wouldn't hurt. She texts, you can't keep pushing it off, though. That's all you keep doing. And here are some more sent over the course of those weeks from Michelle everyone will be sad for a while but they will get over it and move on I think your parents know you're in a really bad place I'm not saying they want you to do it but I honestly think they will accept it and she's talking about suicide yeah. obviously then there are those that really simply just urged him to do it you can't be afraid to fail at killing yourself okay. tonight's the night it's now or never then there are those that played on him wanting to please her I'm frustrated because you always say you're going to do it and then you don't They're all chilling, but some are more chilling than others. You better not be bullshitting me and say you're going to do this and then purposefully get caught. When are you going to do it? Because I can't stay up past 12. (laughs) I know, I know, I know. There is no point in waiting anymore. You lose consciousness with no pain. You just fall asleep and die. Don't do it in the driveway. You'll be easily found. It's the best time now because everyone is sleeping. I know some of those are out of context, but those are just uh, some of the hundreds of texts she sent on this. During one text back and forth, he suggests they do it together. Ah, uh And this is from the trial. Joe Cataldo, her attorney, at one point he tells her, Let's do a Romeo and Juliet, the two of us together, kill ourselves. And Michelle responds, We are not dying. While her attorney presented that as evidence that Conrad was suicidal and Michelle was trying to keep him from doing it, we are not dying. It can be taken other ways as well, like we are not dying. That's the way I looked at it. Now I'm going to read the entire text exchange on the last day of his life. It's lengthy, but it's worth reading, and it speaks for itself. Some points are chilling, some are very poignant, and some are just so teenage inane in the middle of it. So the first text on July 12th is at 12.40 a.m. And it's him probably responding to something from her the day before, okay, with a couple lies. Then at 4.07 a.m., she texts Conrad, with an exclamation point. At 4.18 a.m., she texts him, Are you up? Exclamation point. He apologizes for falling asleep. Michelle texts, It's okay. Why haven't you done it yet, though? He says, I'm too messed up. She says, what are you talking about? He says, my head. She says, you can't think about it. You just have to do it? Question mark. You said you were going to do it. Like, I don't get why you aren't. He says, I don't get it either. IDK. Michelle, I guess you aren't going to do it then. All that for nothing. And then she texts again a minute later. I'm just confused. Like you were so ready and determined. He says, I am going to event- eventfully, I think he means eventually, mm-hmm. And I'm going to read when they, you know, how autocorrect. There may be some words wrong, but I'm going to read what they had. I don't want to presume. Yes, okay. Then he texts, I really don't know what I'm waiting for, but I have everything lined up. She responds, no, you're not, Conrad. Last night was it. You keep pushing it off and you say you'll do it, but you never do. It's always going to be that way if you don't take action. She texts again, you're just making it harder on yourself by pushing it off. You just have to do it. Then she texts, do you want to do it now? And he says, is it too late? Then he says, IDKK, it's already light outside. Then he says, I'm going back to sleep. Love you. I'll text you tomorrow. And by tomorrow, I think he means, you know, it's four yeah. in the morning. I think he means later that day. She responds, probably not realizing he's gone back to sleep, like he said. No, it's probably the best time now because everyone's sleeping. Just go somewhere in your truck and no one's really out right now because it's an awkward time. She texts back a couple minutes later. If you don't do it now, you're never going to do it. Then she texts again. And you can say you'll do it tomorrow, but you probably won't. Nothing for a few hours. Then she texts him at 9.03 a.m. asking if he's awake. He says yes, and she responds. Are you going to do it today? He replies, yes, with three S's. Hmm. She says, like in the daytime. He says, should I? She says, yeah, it's less suspicious. You won't think about it as much, and you'll get it over with instead of waiting until the night. He says, yeah, then I will. Like where? Like I could go to any enclosed area. She says, go in your truck and drive in a sparkling lot somewhere. I think she means parking lot. (laughs) To a park or something. Do it now, like early. He says, didn't we say this was suspicious? She says, no, I think night is more suspicious. A kid sitting in his car just turn on the radio and do it. It won't be suspicious and it won't take long. He says, all right, I'm taking Holly for a walk. I think that's her dog. She says, okay. He says, "I D K why I'm like this. She says, sometimes things happen and we never have the answers why. I wonder what TV show she got that from. He says, like why I'm so hesitant lately. Now I feel like he's looking for somebody because to talk to. Because you're ending about. your life, kid. He says, oh. like two weeks ago I was willing to try everything. And now I'm worse really bad and I'm LOL not following through. It's eating me inside. She says, you're so hesitant because you keep overthinking it and pushing it off. You just need to do it, Conrad. The more you push it off, the more it will eat at you. Then another text from her. You're ready and prepared. All you have to do is turn the generator on and you be free and happy. No more pushing it off. No more waiting. He responds, you're right. She says, if you want it as bad as you say you do, it's time to do it today. He responds, yup, no more waiting. She says, okay, I'm serious. Like, you can't even wait till tonight. You have to do it when you get back from your walk. He responds, thank you. <coughs> She says, for what? He says, still bring here. And then he texts again, being, instead of bring. She responds, I would never leave you. You're the love of my life, my boyfriend. You're my heart. I'd never leave you. And he responds, "Ah," with um, a happy face emoji. She responds with another happy face emoji. Or smiley. It's the colon parentheses, not the emojis. Oh, interesting. Colon parentheses, I love you. He says, love you too, Colon, like those extra letters. love you too, and then colon with a capital D, which is a big smile, smile right? Yes. And she says, she responds, when will you be back from your walk? He says, like, five minutes. Okay, so are you going to do it? He says, Jeez. I gu- I know, <laughs> he's very insistent. He says, I guess. She says, well, I want you to be ready and sure. He responds with colon. And a P, capital P. That's like a your tongue sticking right. out. Right. And she says, what's that mean, ha ha? And he says, IDK, I'm freaking out again. Then another text from him, I'm overthinking. And she responds, I thought you wanted to do this. The time is right and you're ready. You just need to do it. You can't keep living this way. You just need to do it like you did last time and not think about it and just do it, babe. You can't keep doing this every day. He says, I do want to, but like I'm freaking out for my family, I guess. ID And she says, Conrad, I told you I'll take care of them. Everyone will take care of them to make sure they won't be alone and people will help them get through it. We talked about this. They will be okay and accept it. People who commit suicide don't think this much. They just do it. He says, I know, I know, LOL. Thinking just drives me more crazy. She says, exactly. You just need to do it, Conrad, or I'm going to get you help. And for those who see something positive when she talks about getting him help and him getting help, my take on it is I feel like her threats of getting him help are playing him. Yeah. Because he's so resistant. To getting help. And he was in 2012 when he ended up not trying to kill himself again. I think it's one of her manipulations of Uh, him. Yeah, yeah. And she knows it will make him. He doesn't want help. I think there's some issue where he's afraid to let on to his family. I know. And you don't ask permission to get them help. You just do it. Yeah. His friend Ariana, for instance, the time he tried to kill himself in 2012, she called his fucking mother. I mean, granted, he asked her to. But I think she would have anyway. Probably, yeah. You know, you... You would call somebody. Well, she's obviously keeps nagging him to do it. So she texts him again. You can't keep doing this every day. And he says, okay, I'm going to do it today. And she says, do you promise? <laughs> and he says... I promise, Babe. It must be really hard for his mother and his father, to to have those transcripts. Yes. And to read. To, to read what he was texting. And what he was feeling and what she was... It would make me extremely angry. Well, his, I mean, I know I keep, like, snorting and laughter, but it's not because I think it's funny. It's just, like, it's I, unbelievable. I really think she was playing out some fantasy. And I think it, it was very powerful to her to be this one person in his life yes. that he was exchanging so she says do you promise he says i promise babe and he says i have to now and she goes like right now and then he says where do i go colon frowny face emoji yeah and she says and you can't break a promise and just go in a quiet parking lot or something he says okay she says go somewhere you know you won't get caught you can find a place i know you can and she says are you doing it now and this is all before noon by the way And he says, still have no clue. She says, not finding a place to go isn't an excuse. And he says, I know where to go. Where? He says, a park and ride. And she goes, ride? And he goes, that's what it's called. It's like a parking lot. Duh. And she goes, oh, okay, gotcha. Are you going now? And he goes, either that or go to the beach. (laughs) And she goes, why would you go to the beach? And he says, well, that's where my mom's going. She said, I thought you were just going to do it. And he says, my mom's making me go. When I get home, I'm going to do it and she says okay promise i'm going kayaking anyways and he responds haha you love kayaking <laughs> <laughs> and she so says "Yeah, yup. it's I know. So bizarre i know one of the things like the inane teenage stuff mixed in with this and i you know it's, i'm not calling him inane or her inane but it just shows how what a little fantasy world both of them were kind of in Yeah. you know that they were playing it's just, oh i'm not going to kill myself right now cuz my mom's making me go to the beach right And she says, after he says, ha ha, you love kayaking, she says, yup, smiley face, so something I wish we could have done, frowny face. Hmm. He says, make sure you take your son kayaking, smiley face. She says, ha ha, of course I will, smiley face. Then a little while later, he texts her, good, what's up? And she says, kayaking, ha ha. And he says, still, and this is like 1237, so it was about... It was a little over half an hour since their last exchange, and I'm like, still? How long? So it only takes her half an hour to go kayaking? That's I don't know. Weird. Unless, she, unless, unless it's, it's a outside her house. Else. Yeah, that could be. Maybe smoking dope. I don't <laughs> know. And she says, Yep, but I'm done now. And he says, I love you so much. And she says, I love you forever. Hmm. And he says, I'm in the worst pain right now, like it's unbearable. And she says, I think it's time to do it now then. And then at 104, do you agree? And at one hundred eleven, Conrad. And at one twenty seven, please answer me. At 2.13, he finally responds, I'm still at the beach. She responds, oh, okay, sorry. Then she says, let me know when you're leaving. And he says, okay. Then at 3.34, she texts him, and I think they must have been on the phone together. Talking on the phone, because she texts him, sorry, that was my friend who called. She wanted to know if she could borrow my bike because hers has a flat tire, haha. He responds, it's all good, don't worry about it. She says, okay. He says, I'm determined. She says, I'm happy to hear that. He says, I'm ready. She says, good, because it's time, babe. You know that. Then she texts a few minutes later. When you get back from the beach, you got to do it. You're ready. You're determined. It's the best time. He says, okay, I will. Then she texts him a little while later. By now it's around 4.30. Are you back? And he texts her, no more thinking. And she says, yes, no more thinking. You need to just do it. No more waiting. It's 4.28. He says, on the way back now. I know where to go now. And she says, where? With two question marks. He says, a parking lot. There's going to be no cars there at 9, so that's when I'll be found. She says, okay, perfect. Then texts again, when will you be home? He says, 10 minutes. And then he says, ha ha, that's perfect, with a question mark. And she says, okay, and well, yeah, IDK. And he says, like, I don't want to kill anyone else with me. And she says, you won't, with a question mark. And he says, when they open the door, with a question mark. And he says, they won't know it's odorless and colorless. And she says, you're overturning, which I think she means overthinking. They will see the generator and realize you breathed in CO. He says, so should I keep it in the back seat or front? She says, in front. You could write on a piece of paper and tape it on saying carbon monoxide or something if you're scared. And he says, I was thinking that, but someone might see it before it actually happens. Now it's 5 o'clock. She says... Well, wait, the generator is going to be on because you'll be passed out, so they'll know you used carbon poisoning. And then she sends another text text that just says dead with an asterisk, so I assume she means instead of passed out. And then she texts, it's not loud, is it? And he says, not really, I am AO, in my something opinion. In my honest opinion. It's AO, though. Uh, Whatever. She says, okay, good. Then she texts again at 508. Are you going to do it now? And he texts, I'm home, with a period. I don't know if he did that on purpose or accident, but there just isn't that much punctuation. I know. And I just felt like he's saying, I'm home, I'm not out killing myself. And she says, okay. And then he texts, ah, (laughs) A-H-H-H. And she says, what? And he goes, I-D-K-K, I'm stressing. And she says, you're fine, it's going to be okay. You just got to do it, babe. You can't think about it. And he says, okay, okay, I got this. Like it's a baseball game or something. I know. And she says, yes, you do. I believe in you. Did you delete the messages? Oh, yeah, yeah. He says, yes, but you are going to keep messaging me? And you kind of wonder why he lied about that, about deleting the messages. And she says, I will until you turn on the generator. And he says, okay, well, I'm bringing my sisters for ice cream. There's another period there. Not that it means anything, but I know how people like. And she says, so will you do it when you get back? Yep, I'll go right there. <laughs> she says, okay. I'll be right there. And he says, love you. And she goes, I love you so much. And he does a colon with three smiles with it. Mm-mm. And she does a sideways V with oh, a 33. a heart, yeah. Okay, that's a heart. I wish I knew emojis better. but They're not emojis, they're emoticons. Thank you. At 5.36 p.m. he texts her, ha ha, what are you doing? What? Is... <laughs> and no. I know. And she texts, nothing really, just resting. And then at 6, he texts, okay, ha-ha, I'm procrastinating. And she says, yeah, ha-ha, I know. Are you back? And he says, Yup with three Ps. She says, so it's time, period. And he says, oh, it's been time. And she says, are you going to do it now? And he says, I just don't know how to leave them, you know. And she says, say you're going to the store or something. So she totally doesn't get his point there, I think. No, yeah. And he goes, like, I want them to know I love them. And she says, they know. That's one thing they definitely know. Then she texts again, you're overthinking. And he says, I know I'm overthinking. I've been overthinking for a while now. And she says, I know. You just have to do it like you said. Then at 619 she texts, are you going to do it now? And he texts her back, I haven't left yet. Ha ha. And she says, why dot dot dot. And he says, leaving now. And she says, okay, you can do this. Now, if you remember, his mom, Lynn, said, he told her he was going to a friend's. And she said, will you be home for dinner? And he said, I don't think so. And meanwhile, all this was going on. Mm -hmm. So he texts her at 6.25, okay, I'm almost there. And that was his last text. And she texts back, okay. Then at 6.28, she called him, and there was a 43-minute phone call. Then at 7.12, he called her, and there was a 47-minute phone call. Hmm. Then at 9.19... So that's two hours after that long phone call that was after she listened to him die on the phone call. So at 9.19, she texts him, please answer me. She texts him again at 9.19, I'm scared, are you okay, I love you, please answer. At 10.38 oh, p.m. Oh, she thinks all the other texts are gone. She, covering her ass. Yeah. At 10.38, she texts him, you're at your dad's, Camden told me. I'll get you help soon, I guess. At 10.38, she texts again, I thought you actually did it. So... That's a chilling day of texts, and there's a lot there. Yeah. But the words that aren't there are the ones that ultimately did Michelle Carter in. She told several people that while she was on the phone with Conrad and the CO was taking effect, he got scared and got out of the truck. Get back in, she told him. Get back in the fucking truck. And he did. Did she text him? No. Oh, She, she told said. him on the phone. But she texted multiple people that... That's what happened. This is what I don't understand about her. But why did she tell everybody every Because day? she's a narcissistic, mentally ill young woman. Obviously. Well, I mean, like, like, I can see... I mean, I can't see, She but, craved attention. But... And she couldn't help herself. But... Yeah, okay, go on. His death is my fault, she texted Samantha, friend, a classmate. Like, honestly, I could have stopped it. I was the one on the phone with him, and he got out of the car because it was working, and he got scared, and I fucking told him to get back in. But then she rationalizes, because I knew that he would do it all over again the next day, and I couldn't have him live that way, the way he was living anymore. Now this is the night he killed himself. The Camden referenced in those final emails is Conrad's 14-year-old sister, who said she was surprised to hear from Michelle that night. She didn't tell Michelle that Conrad was at their father's, despite what Michelle says in the 10.38 p.m. text to Conrad, to the dead Conrad. Michelle also told Camden that she and Conrad were boyfriend and girlfriend, and Camden turned to her mom. She said this on 48 Hours and said they are. While Michelle put a lot of planning into how Conrad could kill himself, she didn't do a good job at planning covering her tracks. In the weeks after Conrad died, she texted her classmate, Samantha, increasingly alarmed that if anyone saw those texts that she had sent him, she'd be in trouble. Okay, but what about the texts she sent her friends? I know. I know. I mean, okay. I know. I mean I'm not I, I know. asking you. Everything. There's no, I know. She also texted Conrad more than 80 times after he died, proclaiming her love for him, oh, remarking Jesus. on events, and apologizing to him and explaining her actions. The first one seemed to be classic cover your ass, since she knew he was dead. On the morning after he killed himself, and keep in mind that his body wasn't found until later that afternoon. Mm. On the morning after he killed himself, she texted, Did you do something? Conrad, I love you so much. Please tell me this is a joke. Two days later, after everyone knew he was dead, she texted him, I love you so much. Another in the days after he died was, Sweet dreams, babe. I know you're up there smiling down on me. I'll always smile back. I love you forever. On July 21st, a week after his death, she texted him, I read this thing online about trying to agree with the person and that would make them change their mind because they see how stupid they are being. She's talking about suicide. But it didn't work for you and I did it for too long. You probably thought I was okay with it and you talked about being in heaven and being my angel and at the time I went along with it because I knew you weren't going to do anything. But you fucking did it and I'm sorry I didn't save you. So I think that's a kind of cover your ass text. I think she was getting concerned at this point that possibly somebody was looking at the text. Well, no report I've read has made it exactly clear what caused police to look at the text and phone of a boy who obviously killed himself, the fact that she kept texting him and things like that, no less, when the line was still obviously open, probably are what led them to her. So was it the police that decided to look it at it, or was it somebody? I don't family? know. I don't know if somebody tipped the police. Because somebody could have taken his phone and just started looking through it. Or the multiple texts to other people, people she barely knew about the whole thing, weird. may have had somebody. I mean, it's I not know she's fucked up, but it's just fucking weird. Yeah, it's not clear why the police started looking into it. And because it was a suicide and she was a juvenile, it's not something that was in the police reports or reported at the time. And a little more on that in a minute. But she was indicted on February 5th, 2015. Since she was a juvenile, none of what happened before had been reported on. Hmm. Suicides, as I said earlier, are not widely reported. And no one publicly questioned Conrad's death. It well, was just he obviously committed suicide. Yes, he obviously yeah. did. The Attleboro Sun Chronicle broke the story of her indictment on February 26, 2015, it followed the next day by the Boston Globe and other news outlets. She was charged with involuntary manslaughter. Ooh. Michelle's lawyers appealed the charges to the state's Supreme Judicial Court Say manslaughter charges weren't supported, but last summer, the court ruled that the coercive quality of the defendant's verbal conduct overwhelmed whatever willpower the 18-year-old victim had to cope with his depression. Michelle showed she was personally aware that her contact was both reprehensible and punishable. Those are a lot of the texts after his death where she became increasingly concerned that she was going to get in trouble if the texts to him were seen. It was the first time a court had ruled that an involuntary manslaughter indictment could stand on the basis of words alone. The court found that through the stream of text messages and cell phone calls, Carter had established, quote, a virtual presence at the time of the suicide, unquote. But for the defendant's admonishments, pressure, and instructions, the victim would not have gotten back into the truck and poisoned himself to death. Justice Robert Cordy wrote in the opinion. And you'll see as this goes on that her telling him to get back in the truck, not all those text messages, not the thousands of texts and everything else, but her telling him to get back in the truck when he got out is what the big thing was. And it reminds me, I saw this documentary, The Bridge, about people committing suicide off yeah. the Golden Gate Bridge. And one guy they interviewed who's one of the few survivors, he had broke almost every bone in his body, Ugh. but he said the minute he was in the air... He wished he hadn't done it. And you wonder how many people who commit suicide despite their insistence on doing it. So in any case, Conrad got out of the truck, and she told him to get back in, and he was very susceptible to her suggestions. Mm. Michelle Carter waived her right to a jury trial, wisely. Yes. And juvenile court judge Loris Moniz heard the case. And it's a whole different trial when there's no jury. For instance... The judge frequently stopped prosecutors from reading the text in court saying he could read them himself. So juries are swayed by emotion a lot. A judge is looking at the law. An involuntary manslaughter charge can be brought when a person commits wanton or reckless conduct that creates a high degree of likelihood of substantial harm, or when a person recklessly fails to act. Yes. Even so, attorneys not involved in the case told the Boston Globe as the trial began, that the manslaughter conviction would be hard for the prosecution to get. But what you just said about not seeking her... Right, when a person recklessly fails to act. Yeah, she definitely failed to act, if nothing else. Right. Quote, most involuntary manslaughter cases involve physical action, but her words and text messages provided the action, said Daniel Medwed, a professor of law and criminal justice at Northeastern University School of Law. Quote, the question is whether her morally despicable behavior constitutes manslaughter under the law, and I don't believe that it does. And here's another lawyer. He was physically free to decide, said Rosanna Cavallaro, a law professor at Suffolk University. Although Conrad was extraordinarily vulnerable, Michelle's insistent pressure did not constitute a crime under the existing law, Cavallaro said. Cavallaro told The Globe, individuals who commit suicide are generally assumed to possess free will under the law, except in extreme cases. Such as one instance in the 1920s when a woman drank poison after being abducted and brutalized by her male captor. But that's pretty unusual, Cavallaro said. You want to see Michelle Carter punished because morally we find it so appalling. What kind of person does that? But that's not exactly the same question as the legal matter. The crux of the trial was this. The defense argued that no one killed Conrad Roy, but Conrad Roy. Michelle Carter was more than 30 miles away, and Conrad was suicidal, had studied how to kill himself, and then carried it out. Michelle Carter had a right to say whatever she wanted to, no matter how horrific, under the First Amendment, mm. but Conrad is the one who killed himself. Quote, Conrad Roy was on the path to take his own life for years, Carter's attorney Joe Cataldo said. It was Conrad Roy's idea to take his own life. It was not Michelle Carter's idea. This was a suicide, a sad and tragic suicide, but not a homicide. He also argued her actions were affected by a prescription drug she was taking, Celexa. Mm, The drug's generic name is Cidalopram, and it's a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Which is similar to Prozac and Zola. Right. Cataldo said it was for impulse control issues, among other things. And one of the known side effects is irritability that leads to lashing out. Hmm. She had been hospitalized at least once before for mental problems, and he'd said at an earlier hearing it was June, you know, the month before Conrad died. she had uh, eating disorder issues. So she said. The Boston Globe's research on PubMed Health found that the drug, quote, may cause some teenagers and young adults to be agitated, irritable, or display other abnormal behaviors. Some people may have trouble sleeping, get upset easily, and have a big increase in energy or start to act reckless, the site says. Although recklessly would have been of Bristol County District Attorney Mary Claire Flynn said that Michelle Carter was an emotionally needy teen who wanted attention and wanted to be popular at school. She engaged in, quote, a sick game of life and death with Conrad Roy. Roy and Carter both struggled with mental health issues, but Michelle Carter relentlessly exploited Roy's vulnerability, a time when her desperate efforts to befriend girls in her high school were rebuffed, Flynn said. Quote, She was trying to get close to them and be part of their lives, Flynn said. Michelle needed something to get their attention, and she used Conrad. I don't know if Flynn pointed this out in court or not because I didn't watch the trial. I would add here that after Conrad's death, Michelle said, that she was, quote, his only support. And I think that also played into her ego and neediness. Yeah, It was more benefit to her to be in that position with him than to let his family know that he was constantly planning to kill himself, especially when he felt, apparently, through a lot of things. I mean, there's a lot of information in that he had a lack of support and people didn't fully understand him. And it's obvious his mom and sisters fully supported him, but I think he was his father shy. Cut, and there were issues with the father, a lot of which... Weren't made public, and so who knows what he was struggling with. But in any case, Flynn also said that Michelle texted Roy's mother after he died were meant to mask Michelle's role. For instance, one she wrote in August that year, said she had tried so many times to dissuade Roy from suicide. She points out that Carter listened to him die, but didn't call for help. Uh and again I want to point out she knew he was dead at 9 o'clock or whatever on July 12th. His family didn't know for sure until 5.30 the next yeah. afternoon when his body was found and yet she texted his sister asking where he was she texted people all over the place and I saw some text there was just too much stuff to include where about 3 o'clock the next afternoon she texted his mother asking if she had seen Conrad yeah. and the mother I think responded something like that they were looking for him they couldn't find him and she's like oh I'm sorry to hear that. At the trial the prosecutor portrayed Michelle Carter as desperate for friends and pretty pathetic. And a lot of this trial information I have here is from the Boston Globe. Samantha, who we talked about earlier, and three classmates testified that Carter texted them in a push to be closer friends with them. And this was before Conrad died. They said Michelle Carter sent them ingratiating messages saying they were beautiful and amazing while sharing her struggles with an eating disorder, self-injury, and efforts to find help. And while there's references she makes to people about her cutting herself, like when she wasn't invited to parties and stuff, nobody ever saw evidence that she did cut herself. Two days before Roy's death, the teenagers had reluctantly agreed to sleep over at her house, and Carter thanked them repeatedly for coming and asked when they could get together again, according to their testimony. It's weird. It's like, you know, we've talked in the past about men that you meet that give you this bad vibe because the desperation is like oozing off of them. Mm. And that's probably what she used. When someone approaches you like that, you can feel it and it makes people uneasy. And I think and maybe that's like, why yeah. the virtual relationship with Conrad worked so well yeah. because it was completely electronic. Yeah. And also she managed to key in A very on... bad combination of people. In her messages to Samantha and the three others who testified, Michelle, and this is quoting the Boston Globe, quote, appeared to use Roy as a conversation piece, telling her peer She had a boyfriend who was in a bad place right now. As we already went over, two days before he killed himself, she texted about his disappearance. And then the night he killed himself, and the next day, told them she listened over the phone as Roy succumbed to carbon monoxide fumes. And she admitted she never alerted authorities or his family. Four days after his death, she texted one of those who testified, Allie, who she met at summer camp and barely knew that she was, quote, on the phone talking to him when he killed himself. I heard him dying. Allie suggested Michelle see a therapist, noting, I don't know you very well. So there's a sane person. In other text messages, Michelle wrote that she hated the way she looked and wasn't happy with herself. She had tried to commit suicide and gone through six therapists, she said. If I ever feel like cutting, or if I'm having a problem with eating, can I text you for help? She wrote Samantha, who replied that she would be there for her. I would have been like, no. I no. Bristol County District Attorney Katie Rayburn said Carter, quote, turned their conversations, the conversations with Conrad, into, quote, I love you, kill yourself. She knew he had social anxiety, was depressed, and she knew his frailties. She also knew what it was like herself to be lonely. Cataldo, Michelle's attorney, said that Michelle had the free speech right to say what she wanted, as well as the fact that there is no legal obligation to get someone help, and that Massachusetts has no law against assisted suicide. He's in a tough position. She gets a defense, and he has to defend her. Anything he says is going to be sneered at by people, but if you take the emotion away, he's just going by the legal stuff, and he is correct, legally. You know, I mean, he has to take the legal position. Yeah. In addition, Cataldo said, Conrad had, quote, specifically sought her assistance and encouragement. It's insufficient to say that she caused him to die. But Rayburn, the DA... Said that Conrad was deeply conflicted about suicide and ultimately did not want to die. She points out that Michelle told him to get back in the truck when he expressed doubts about taking his own life. Quote, By telling him to get back into the car when he didn't want to, that's causation, Rayburn said. This is not constitutionally protected speech. Prosecutors say Michelle Carter acted recklessly when she pressured Roy into committing suicide directed him to information about how to take his own life, and told him to get back into the truck. The defense called Stephen Vranu, a multimedia forensic analyst, who testified that Roy had used his laptop computer to research methods of suicide, suicide by cop, and ways to die while asleep. Roy made several such searches on June 24th, and continued the searches until July 4th, eight days before he died. And as we know by the text, by June 24th, she was already pressuring him to kill himself. Yeah, yeah. Two Mattapoiset police officers testified they responded to a call for an assault on February 19, 2014, at the home of Roy's father. Officers said when they arrived, Roy's face was swollen, bloodied, and he had multiple lacerations, that his father was subsequently arrested for assault and battery. This says he was arrested. It doesn't say if there was ever any adjudication of that. Dr. Peter R. Bregan testified that Michelle was, quote, involuntarily intoxicated by the selexa she was taking. Oh, and that last yeah. 48 hours makes a lot of hay out of yes, this. Yes, they did. I remember she's that. She's not thinking she's doing something criminal. She's thinking she's found a way to help her boyfriend, Bregan told juvenile court judge Lawrence Menese. Carter, quote, was unable to form intent, because she was so grandiose, and her absolute intent was to help him. He wants to die. He wants to go to heaven. She will help him just the way he wants it. So he said she had issues of grandiosity, and I think she did. Yeah. I don't think it was the Slexa. I'm surprised that there wasn't more attention paid to whatever mental illness she like, may have had yeah, like, that made like her like want to. Yes. Not to be. I, a, I know a we're not. But to me, when you see yeah. all this, it's not. She's. Oh, it's be, from a drug. It's because she has some. Severe mental illness yes, that and he was just the poor, wrong kid in the wrong place. Michelle Carter was diagnosed with depression and placed on Prozac for eight months in two thousand and eleven when she was more four- than that. when she was fourteen, before the dosage was reduced, then halted. Bregan said. later, she was prescribed prozac again, he said. She began taking Celexa in April 2014 for impulse control issues, according to her lawyer. Bregan said by July she was, quote, "...involuntarily intoxicated by the medication, which led to a change in the tone of her exchanges with Roy." The text messages show a very troubled youngster, Bregan said. Her parents, teachers, and coaches didn't know about this. This was going on largely between her and her peers. And I think she seemed like the kind of girl who could come off very good superficially to people. But I also think it seems like that's the age when mental health issues start to come to the fore. And she she definitely has... Well, and I also think that parents sometimes are the last people to recognize... Mental health issues. When it's something like that, when you're not, you know, a raging schizophrenic or bipolar or something, when it's something that's more subtle, it's easy to just, like, brush it off as a personality problem or... But anyway, from October 2012 until July 2014, Conrad Roy continuously discussed his, ex- his desire to end his own life. Ah expressing sadness about turmoil in his home and hearing voices, Bregan said. But Michelle Carter was determined to get him professional help, he said. He brings up this exchange, this text exchange. You aren't going to get better on your own, Michelle Carter wrote. You need professional help, like me. Then she says, I'm trying my best to dig you out. I don't want to be dug out, Conrad replies. He went on to tell her there was nothing she could do to stop him from committing suicide. Bregan says Carter was wholesomely attached to saving Roy and helping him by doing everything she can. I think, as I said earlier, that she played on the fact that she knew he was going to refuse help, so it benefited her to, you know, as the caring girlfriend to push for help because she knew yeah. that he was just going to dig in his feet. Yeah. Roy left several undated suicide notes written on notebook paper. It's not clear when they were written, including one to his father. I'm sorry I wasn't the boy you wanted. Aww. I can't take the pain. I did this to finally be happy. He also left one for Michelle Carter, writing, I love you and greatly appreciate your you effort and kindness towards me. I'll forever be in your heart, and we will meet up someday in heaven. But the judge, Lawrence Menese, said on June 15th, when she was found guilty, that none of that matters and that Roy, quote, breaks the chain of self-causation by exiting his vehicle. That Conrad Roy could have survived that day, then killed himself sometime in the future, is of no consequence, the judge said. Moniz, knowing, some experts pointed out, that the uniqueness of the case may bring it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, cited a Massachusetts case from 1816 when an inmate at the Hampshire County Jail was charged with encouraging a fellow inmate to hang himself. The inmate who hanged himself was due to be executed by hanging six hours later for killing his father. A Massachusetts judge found that even a condemned man deserves to be, quote, cheered by hope until the last moments Uh. of his existence. Uh. Moni said that when Conrad got out of the truck and Michelle told him to get back in, knowing Conrad's fears and reluctance and ambivalence about actually going through a suicide constitutes wanton restless conduct. He also noted she'd gone out of her way to obtain the telephone number of Conrad's mother and sister in the days before his suicide, but she didn't call them after Roy had second thoughts and got out of the truck. He also brought up the December 1999 fire at the Worcester Cold Storage Building that killed six firemen, a homeless man and young woman had been squatting in there and had candles lit. They knocked one over. They left the building, and they were charged with manslaughter and convicted, even though they weren't there when the firemen died. And that was a very big case. Maybe we'll do it someday in Massachusetts. And that was considered a landmark case because the two weren't present. So he brought up both of those cases. As I said, he found her guilty on June 15th and sentenced her to 15 months with five years probation. He, however, suspended her incarceration until all of her appeals in Massachusetts are exhausted. He fully expects this to go to the U.S. Supreme Court. Once the appeals in Massachusetts are exhausted, which may take years, then she goes to prison. Cataldo, her lawyer, said he will appeal the verdict on the grounds that Massachusetts does not have an assisted suicide or encouragement of suicide law in place, and it's violative of the First Amendment. In July, Conrad's mother filed a $4.2 million civil suit against Carter... And the family says they don't necessarily need the money, but it's to make a point and set up a foundation in his name. In a weird epilogue, Amanda Knox wrote a piece in the LA Times saying Carter shouldn't have been convicted. Coincidentally, Knox has authored a book that's just been published. Not that it takes away from what she said, but still. And for those of you who don't know, Amanda Knox is the young woman who... the American woman who was arrested in Italy about 10 years ago, a little more for killing her roommate... When she obviously didn't do it, she was in jail in Italy for a very long time. And it was... Convicted twice. Yes. And Amanda Knox wrote in part, Encouraging your boyfriend to follow through with his own death wish should not qualify as involuntary manslaughter. She pointed out that Carter is mentally ill too and, quote, ill-equipped to manage her own social anxiety, self-harm ideation, and body dysmorphia, much less Roy's depression and tortured obsession with ending his own life. I don't disagree with I don't don't e- let, let me get through with okay. what she says, and then we can... It's hard to feel sympathy for Michelle Carter, Amanda Knox writes. It's also hard to feel sympathy for drug addicts or to understand obsessively suicidal adolescents. Even so, we have to try. Just because it's hard to feel sympathy and understanding, that doesn't mean it isn't the right and just thing to do. Conrad Roy III needed our sympathy and our help and didn't get it in time. Michelle Carter deserves the same sympathy and help now. In our zeal to deflect blame, we insist on villainizing Carter because we want an easy explanation, black and white reasons. We want to assign agency whenever something bad happens. But in so doing, we discredit Roy's agency, which included his choice to get back inside the truck. Roy made the mistake of seeking the advice and encouragement of another troubled adolescent. He confided his suicidal ideation in the wrong person. He wasn't thinking clearly, but that was still his choice. Carter made bad choices of her own, terrible mistakes, as the defense attorney said, and she will have to live with it for the rest of her life. By holding her accountable for Roy's death, we increase the tally of victims in this case, we ignore the mental health factors that lead to suicide, and we learn nothing about how to prevent it. We also probably encourage further self harm in Michelle Carter. Then Amanda Knox says, I should know. For months after my own wrongful conviction, I fell into a depression. As I realized that my innocence did not guarantee my freedom, I fantasized about the various ways I could kill myself. And then she goes into that a little bit in detail, but then she points out that she didn't kill herself, which I think is a salient point here. And I agree with her in a lot of ways, as I think you do. Michelle Carter is obviously an incredibly mentally ill young woman. It's too bad nobody noticed. It's too bad... That she, whatever help. But the wrong guy who was also mentally ill. Right. And And whatever help she was getting, it probably wasn't aimed at the right thing. And maybe she was the kind of girl, the kind of sociopathic personality where she could bamboozle her therapists, where they focused on certain things. She knew what kind of things cutting. You know, suicidal thoughts and stuff get attention, but it doesn't seem like a lot of attention, even in this trial and stuff, was given to, I mean, it's easy to laugh at and belittle somebody who's desperate for friends. I know. Someone who, you know, the girls go over to the slumber party, but nobody really wants to go, and who writes lengthy, lengthy texts. To people who don't want to get them. Who don't even know her. And don't even know her. I can just see, like, you know, if I was that age, and I wasn't one of the popular girls, but I also wasn't desperate to be popular, but I can see just... Even now, when you have somebody that that's reaching out to you that you want to have nothing to do with, it's it's awkward, and you, you're just kind of like, "Yeah, oh, get you know, what is this person?" It, it's, want? it's true. Why is she and texting me, I don't know her. I and, don't, you know and I don't it. think it's it was necessarily up to her classmates to notice no. that she was mentally ill or no. diagnose it, I or just thought she was weird. And, and I don't even think she's the kind of person that if some really empathetic person was to befriend her, I don't think that would have cured no. her or made her any better. What bothers me is that, and I don't want to be one of these old fogies who's, oh, the parents need to know what the kids are doing, blah, 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 and I'm not blaming her parents or his parents or anybody, but it stuns me that these two kids could have thousands of texts between each other over the course of a few weeks, that he could be at the beach with his mom and sisters, and his mom said he and she walked on the beach and had a long talk and all this And he could be having that lengthy text conversation starting at 4 in the morning and going right up until he killed himself, and nobody knows it's happening. You know, and one thing, too, I thought, aside from that, is he must have been exhausted. He must have been exhausted. And if you watch his YouTube journal... Well, now, uh, the thing I want to know about his YouTube journal, how many people watch that? I don't know. I don't know when it was posted on YouTube. I don't know if it was posted after he died. I have no idea. I just saw him 48 hours. And they weren't clear. But he seems like a very sweet young man. Not that I'm blaming anybody. It's frustrating to me that he refused help. That he hid... As I said, I've had depression. I understand hiding it from people because, frankly, a lot of people don't understand, feel like they don't really care. You almost wonder if that was part of the issue with his father. And I don't want to guess or speculate, but I'm wondering if his father wasn't sympathetic. Sometimes when people, if a person has not felt that, and it's not just being sad, I mean, when you're in the, the depths of, a, of depression, it's a hopeless feeling of despair. It's not just, oh, yeah, I. I right. I feel it's not that like, down. oh, I'm sad. I mean, right. Other people do not always understand it. No, they want you, that, you to snap, like, out like, snap out of it. Snap out of it. What's your problem? Up, yeah. look at how good your life is, yeah. and you can even see. And in those, that makes you feel worse. And as those as look at how good your life is because right. then you look at yourself and like, what is wrong? And with you me? Those, life is And you watch those. Good, then yeah, I feel like shit. What's wrong with me? I mean, I understand that. And you watch that, like the YouTube video, and he's holding up his captain certificate and he's crying and he's saying this what a great achievement this is, yeah, is and I should be happy about this but I'm not and I understand it's hard you know people were aware of his issues and were trying to help him but on the other hand you had the secret unknown yes. constant constant drumbeat from Michelle Carter to kill himself, and you wonder how successful could his recovery really be when he was just being pummeled with this from her, and she played on every emotion. She played on guilt, she played on his maleness, she played on every single emotion the kid had, and I feel like a lot of those texts, when he tried to kill himself very poorly with the Tylenol and NyQuil, so poorly that apparently nobody knew he did it, and he's like, I just don't have it in me, I feel like he wanted someone to talk him yes, out of it, did. and he's gonna resist and he's gonna say, he I don't want help. resisting help, help but the, yeah. the what you do you is don't, you, you don't, say, don't. you go to his mom or somebody, since okay. she had her, his mom's phone number, and say, look, Conrad does not want me to do this, but I gotta tell you, he is talking about killing himself all the time. Although you wonder how much he really would have done it had he not had such a receptive audience. I know, I know. Because kids that age are very willing to listen and to be swayed. And here's this pretty girl who he could kind of have a, has a fantasy relationship because it's they didn't spend any time together. Know, it's, it's... And she's he wants to please her. And I'm not saying it's that simple. But she seems to be the biggest force in his life because she's so relentless. Crazy. And I'm sure his mom and sisters were probably just going around their normal routine and doing their thing. And his mom loved him very much and supported him. But she wasn't in his face every friggin' minute of the day. Nobody. Well, he hid it from people. He hid what was going on because he seemed sensitive. He had a strained relationship with his father. I hate to sound Freudian about it, but I think he. He was trying to be like his dad. He wanted to be manly. And a, a lot of men, t- they don't want any child of theirs to not be good representation of them. <laughs> right. Especially a male child. Right. And also, I think some parents have a vision of what, especially men with sons... Well, and women with daughters. Yes, to have a vision of what their child is going to be like. You know, and it starts before the kid is and born. I think, I mean, if, if the cops are called to your house because you punch your kid in the face, there's something going on. Y- yes, and you wonder how much that added to Conrad's depression that his relationship with his and and it's interesting that michelle carter's attorney joe cataldo his response to the civil suit was a kind of a positive one and again i read this in a newspaper report so i'm not sure of everything he said but that things will come out in a civil suit that didn't come out in a trial we were focused on the legalities yeah and i'm not exonerating her for her behavior michelle carter not at all it was it's a tragic situation um, all around. I, I think she, it could have been prevented. Yes. Both of, both them, of them needed help. And needed that's where help. I think she still needs help. I and think I she was intoxicated help. like that psychiatrist said, but not with the drug she was taking. I think she was intoxicated with the power she got out of being the focus of this kid's life and having the ability to push him to life and death. And I do think... She has some kind of narcissistic Right, and I think the attention attention, it got, and I'm not blaming the episode of Glee, but that episode of Glee played up the character's suicide and the people's reaction to it and the grieving girlfriend was a big part of that episode and i think she desperately she's another person and we've talked about this before who did not have a sense of self and desperately was looking for a way to have that it's just a combination of fact a boy a depressed boy who's already suicidal and I mean... Yes, it was a bad, it was a combustible... Sociopathic girl. It was a combustible combination and you see it in a lot of cases where you have two people who commit a murder uh and you have the psychopath or sociopath and then you have the kid who's the Kind of passive. Like, yeah, I was thinking because it's been in the news lately because they're making a movie, the Elizabeth Smart case. The guy that kidnapped her had that wife or whatever, <laughs> that, and they were both mentally ill, but in different ways. And and you know he kind of got her. To, sometimes they'll hook up with somebody that will either go along or help them. Or the same with the guy that kidnapped. Same with the guy that kidnapped J.C. Dugard got his wife to go along with him. And I think that you get these two that it's like a co. Oh, what's the name of it? And it's not codependent, but it's like co... The same type of idea as codependent, but two mental illnesses that feed on each other. And you get the strong sociopathic or psychopathic personality. And then you get somebody that is in some either vulnerable position yes. or is a passive person who is easily manipulated and it's obvious that Michelle Carter knew how to manipulate him. And the other thing I'll say is teenagers in some ways they can be almost amoral before they mature and I think part of it is not understanding the consequences of things but they will do things that later in life you're like, I can't believe that. I did that. I did that, that like shock Uplifting or whatever yes. or playing pranks on somebody that's cruel or something like that and I think that played into it but also the fact that their relationship was not one where they were physically together in the same place it was all most all text and they uh, and seeing each other face to face makes it easier for her to distance herself from him. It does. And in fact that and was brought not up see him as a real person. In fact that was brought up at the trial that if she had been standing next to the truck when he got out, how easy would it have been for her to say, get back in that, that distance that texting and other social media gives you from other people makes it easy to not connect yeah to have a very superficial connection and i think that whatever her fate is, is she's obviously gonna pay mentally and emotionally for the rest of her life. I think at some point, if she hasn't already, she's gonna say, "Oh my fucking god, why was I like that?" Because as you were saying, you look back at things you did as a teenager, or things you thought, or things like you even was okay, things I mean, you thought you were okay, even or even if you know they're not okay, it's like, uh, you or know, you know, like things, said, you know, dating things, or things when you liked somebody, the things that you would do, and then a few years later, you look back and say, "Oh my god." Why was I yeah. like that? Why did I say that? Why did I do that? And I'm not trivializing what she did. I also think it's easy not knowing anything about her family, her coaches, her teammates, her classmates, for, except for what we've read here. It's easy to not accept that someone has a serious mental illness mm-hmm. that needs to be looked at. It's easy to think of somebody as being quirky or or a pain in the ass, or... Uh, you know, Michelle, she's just a loser. She's an attractive young woman, athlete. I can't remember if they said she had good grades or not. I'm she did. She, she was, was on the honor roll. Two adults, they probably would have superficial relationships with her anyway. I mean, she you know, when you're a teenager, you're Her coach, aside. an older fella, yeah. is on 48 Hours, just seemed befuddled yeah. by this. He just thought she was wonderful. And I'm like, well, there's a and. But also, uh, you know, she's not evil. She's a person. And she's, she's been a called girl. evil. I don't want to diminish the feelings of conrad roy's family his mother has the right his poor mother they have the right to feel any way they need to feel about this but from a more the kind of perspective we have is simply observers of it what she did was horrific the way she treated that boy was horrific and the results were horrific nobody knows whether he would have eventually committed suicide or gotten better and like I said, if she wasn't relentlessly on him about it, maybe his recovery at least could have been, he could have focused more on his recovery. Yeah. But no human being who's stable behaves that way no. and manipulates somebody that way. And, and it's easy to blame social media and texting and stuff. And obviously, if there weren't those things, this relationship but wouldn't were, have been yeah, what it was, but that it. doesn't mean she, her illness wouldn't have affected somebody else and is equally bad a way. She saw a way when he first revealed in October 2012 his suicidal tendencies. I think she began to She feel, used it to get attention from her friends. Yeah, From her, not friends, Her but classmates, the people, the people she, she wanted, wanted to be friends with. Yeah. And she was lonely. Legally, too. One of the reasons they had so many issues with this charge of involuntary manslaughter is the fact that when those laws were written, texting somebody relentlessly to make mm-hmm. them commit suicide well, was writing it, letters but It would have taken yeah. like weeks for them. But in any case, I thought there well, was that was. it was a very thorough. By thorough, do you mean long? <laughs> yes. But uh, no, it was good. I saw that 48 hours, which, of course, you know. Left stuff out. And had read about it. And I didn't really have an opinion one way or the other. Uh, I, I can understand the legalities of it. I can understand... I can understand the emotional feeling. If, if he had been my son or my brother, I can understand hating her. Yeah. Thinking that she's a murderer. If I were his mother, the boy spent the day at the beach. They had ni- a nice talk. He took his sisters out for ice cream. He left the house at 6. She said, are you going to be home for supper? He said, I don't think so. He didn't say goodbye. Yeah, he didn't say "I you love know you." What though? I bet you anything that if you talk to a lot of family of people who committed suicide, they would have a similar story. Right, but what I'm but what they wouldn't have is then an entire day of tech, knowing that that boy that nonchalantly walked out of the house and said he didn't think he'd be home for supper. Who had just taken his two younger sisters for ice cream and who seemed to be doing okay had been texting all day long no, with this person. You can see in that day the hesitance yeah. in his. He was d- going back and forth, and, I and, and he, if she had just said, if she had just texted his mom I know. and said, she "Don't let rumble. Conroy leave the house," and he you wants know what to kill the, himself. The thing is. If he had deleted all of her texts, like she asked, no, this never would have happened. She would. No one would have known. They would I know. have just been even like, the texts she sent afterwards to people. I don't think. No, they would have said, "Oh, that's just her making it all about herself," right. and she's always telling lies anyway. She's just. And I almost yeah. wondered. I know, you know, that the fact that people said she exaggerated, she couldn't be believed, and I believe he did get out of the truck, and she told him to get fucking back, and. But what if she was making that up? I know. What if he didn't get out of the truck and she was just doing that to, like, for more self-aggrandizement? I, know. Aggrandizement, I know, no that one the knows. power she well, had. Well, that's the thing. No one knows what what they that, said in those conversations, or no one knows if that really happened. Yes. Yeah. Well, anyways. but in any case, and we'll wow. bring up if there's any updates on this, we'll bring it up, and we have some recommendations coming up. <laughs> for our recommendation. We have one of my all-time favorite nonfiction books, a book I've read several times. And the reason we're bringing it up is because we've heard this case, although not the book, mentioned on a couple other podcasts recently. Uh-huh. And there's been a lot said, and it's Fatal Vision by yes. Joe McGinnis. And it's the definitive book it about is. the Jeffrey McDonald murder. And I read this book when it first came out. Me too. I was already... It came out in 1983, I want... 84... And I had already read his other book, Going to Extremes, which was a very good book. About spending a year in Alaska. When they were building the pipeline. Yes. Uh, He's a journalist. And he's a He died in March 2014. Unfortunately... Yes, and he's always been one of my heroes and role models. He went to the same college I did, which oh, he has did. nothing. Yeah, Holy Cross grad, and he he's a very very good journalist. And before we talk about the book itself, I want to say there's been a lot of controversy. Most recently, a couple of years ago, Errol Morris, the documentary filmmaker, wrote a book in which he thinks Jeffrey MacDonald is innocent, which is <sighs> a little weird. But once again, bringing up McGinnis, and there's been a couple lawsuits regarding his book. I think people who don't fully understand don't realize what happened. When Jeffrey McDonald went on trial in 1979, he asked Joe McGinnis to write a book. Joe McGinnis told him up front. That he didn't have any feeling as to whether McDonald was guilty or innocent, and he was going to write honestly as a journalist. And McDonald, in his hubris yeah. and narcissism, felt that that meant the book would show him in a good light and show him as innocent. Joe McGuinness had Jeffrey McDonald sign an agreement that said that Jeffrey McDonald would accept the book no matter what. And I'm simplifying it, yeah. but there's been a lot of talks since then, including an article by Janet Malcolm that Joe McGinnis somehow bamboozled McDonald and let McDonald go along thinking Joe thought he was innocent. Errol Morris kind of makes the same case, and that isn't true. Joe McGinnis in 2012, a couple of years before he died, wrote a short book. I think it's less than 100 pages long that explains the whole thing and I believe the guy because he's a good journalist. And I've never read... I've read all his books. I've never read anything and by him. And when you first read Fatal Vision, he actually tells the same story at the beginning of that, that when he first met Jeffrey MacDonald... And I think... Did Jeffrey MacDonald approach Joseph Wambaugh first... And if you don't know who Joseph Lombard is, he wrote The Onion Field. Um, he's a former cop who wrote some great fiction and non Wonderful, writer. Books. And he's like, I know, no, I don't want to do it. He also updated Fatal Vision after all this he happened. Did. And I read Fatal Vision when it first came out, and I just read it. And it must have been like maybe 2012, I or 2013, maybe. Yeah. With the updates. Uh, he had like a maybe an epilogue or something at the end that I read. Or it might have been the new. It, it might may have been the, that. That, no, that. But picture. in any case. And that forgot how the book is exhausted. Yeah, he in a good covers way, not exhausting. He, I mean, if you. If you're getting your information on the Jeffrey McDonald yes. case from People magazine. Or from people who are writing about it now, I think you should read that book. They made a good movie where Gary Cole Gary played Cole. Jeffrey McDonald. And Carl it took Malden, me a long time from, to see him as anyone other, even though he doesn't really look like him. No, he doesn't. In fact, I, whenever I picture Jeffrey McDonald, I picture the young Gary Cole. Yeah, me too. Although I think Gary Cole's best role was as Diane's boyfriend. I on know, the good life. a good he was I liked him. Um, on that. his last name was McVeigh. Yeah, Kurt McVeigh. Yes. Yeah, I love him on that. Interestingly, yeah. But in any case, anybody who, particularly anyone who thinks Jeffrey McDonald might be innocent, yeah. Read the book, and no lawsuit ever connected with that book, including by Jeffrey McDonald, has questions the facts. No. I think I think Jeffrey McDonald may have convinced himself by now that he didn't kill his wife and children. He's a sociopath. And I think that... And I think he fully believed, well, he's going to believe him in a sense. And Joe McGinnis did settle out of court, I think, to get the lawsuit out of the way, and Jeffrey McDonald got like 300 and something thousand dollars, which is a drop in the bucket compared to what McGinnis, I think probably made off fatal vision but settling a lawsuit doesn't always mean that you're You're guilty guilty and again and again Jeffrey McDonald's claim was that he was bamboozled by Joe McGinnis and that Joe McGinnis played along and pretended he thought McDonald was innocent even when Joe didn't I think what it really was was McDonald thinking that oh just like everybody else he thinks I'm innocent which a lot of people didn't But somebody who's that in love with themselves would think that I think so. I uh, think he yeah. didn't. I he just assume that he thought. And, he and was Joe innocent. McGinnis is honest about the fact that he wanted to keep access to McDonald and keep talking to him. And as a journalist, there's nothing wrong with that. He didn't tell McDonald he thought he was innocent. I'm sure he didn't tell him anything. No, he didn't because he's a journalist. He's has that great talent of writing nonfiction, and it reads as well yeah, as fiction. Yes. It's not boring yes. because he does so much research and talks to the people and gets their. Per- he's great at character. And that sounds weird when you're talking about nonfiction. You can see all the characters in the book. He does a beautiful job with Colette, Mm -hmm. Jeffrey McDonald's wife, of portraying her as a human being and her dreams and wishes for her future, her relationship with her children. Her relationship with him. He just does a. And, and I think that Freddie Kassab, he was Colette's stepfather, basically. Who thought, who was McDonald's biggest supporter yes, until until kind of like when he started bragging and right until McDonald's behavior after the murders. Kind of turned him off. I mean, McDonald was, for people who don't know, he was, he killed his wife and daughters. He blamed it on hippies, saying acid is groovy, kill the pigs. And as this happens a lot, Charles Stewart, Sam Shepard, everybody else, he had very superficial injuries. Whereas his wife and five-year-old daughter and two-year-old daughter, his wife killed. who was four and a half months, were just just massacred, beaten and oh, stabbed oh, horribly, 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 horribly to death. And he was charged pretty quickly, but it was never brought. I think what was complicating things was him being in the army too at the time. It complicated, and also people's perceptions. This was the 1970s. People, green beret. he was a green beret, so you'd think he could have kicked those hippies' ass. But he was, people had a hard time believing that a good-looking Green Beret doctor who went to Princeton and, by the way, wasn't afraid to tell everybody that, yeah. would kill his wife and children. People have very, they do now, I but back then that even the more. the hypothesis of how it happened, and if you read the book, it lays out a very... Credible. He didn't plan it, and part of the killings. He freaked out. Yeah, he freaked. But part of the killings were a cover up. You know, it's just you have to read it. But he, I think it was pretty obvious, especially because his wounds were superficial, and we know from and also I don't know how many cases. Yeah. The podcast, My Favorite Murder, recently did a a good presentation on this case. And that's one of the things that made me want to talk about Fatal Vision. But I already had wanted to talk because I read a article in people magazine and it was months and months ago but i'm just getting around now to doing this that was very kind of complimentary toward him that glossed over a lot of the i thought it was bullshit yeah glossed over a lot of the details and there's very specific forensic evidence that shows it happened the way it happened not the way he said it happened and a lot of circumstantial evidence that shows how he came up with his back at the time too i think most of the people involved in the investigation just thought he did it there was little doubt that he, he yeah was it wasn't lying. much of a mystery yeah and just his reactions the nine one one calls i would love to see a really good thorough 2017 era documentary about if he ever got a new trial he would be convicted they were actually really good about in 1970 did he go to trial at least twice yes he yeah. did and there was a military trial it's very complicated but they didn't fuck up the evidence, no, despite no. the fact that the scene got a little trampled and stuff. The fibers the evidence, no, from his pajamas, was, the blood evidence. The way that the pajama top matched, matched the, stab the stab of, stab of his was. wife. Oh, and, God. Um, he had put thought of it. So yes, horrible. and if you read Fatal Vision, I actually don't want to give too much away for people who no, aren't that wonderful familiar. book. But though. it lays it out. It Joe McGinnis does a beautiful job of unfurling... The yes. story, and it's a lengthy he book. Tells st- if you're looking, I know it's August is almost over, but if you're looking for that final beach read, uh, I remember when I got it. It's an engrossing book. I got it I, when it first came out in paperback, and I remember our sister Liz was living in Boston at the time, and I went down to visit her for a weekend. I was living in Biddeford, Maine, and looking for a weekend away out of Biddeford, and I brought that Why book would with you me. Want to leave Biddeford? I know, especially in 1984 or 85 or whenever, I spent. The the weekend reading that book okay. I, we had to go to the laundromat yeah, for some reason I and i can remember sitting on a bench on a laundromat in brighton massachusetts reading that book and not wanting to put it down all i wanted to do was read that yeah. book i didn't want to stop reading that book it, yeah and it's I got, I got a, a lot of photos which we love in true yes. crime books i love photos you know what bugs me not to go on a tangent but when you get a true crime book yeah. on kindle it's very hard to find the photos. You know, they need a link to the pages with the photos. I know. In Kindle oh my God, my, I have that old school nook and um, sometimes the photos are okay but you can't make them bigger or anything. No, well same with my Kindle. And also a lot of time the photos aren't there and it really I, I, I to know. every I don't like single I the photos. Are if you there. publish true crime books and we happen want to be photos, photos, lots, lots of, them. of them. In fact, <laughs> One I just read. At least I have the internet so you can look stuff up, but I, I still I, I like photos. I just read Jeffrey Tubin's book about Patty Hearst, mm-hmm. and there were two sections of photos. Oh, nice. And I, I love like the two, two section of photo yeah. book. I got an Ann Rule one out of the library that Ann was Rule. old, that was about 20 years old, the hardcover copy, and some of the photo pages were missing. Oh, that was the one of, we talked about last thing, because I said about the lady stabbing herself in the leg, and yes. you, you got mad because I spoiled it. Yes, for that's you. right. But I hate it when the photos. So anyway, that's one of my all-time favorite books, and I, I highly recommend book. it. If you have not read it and you are a fan of True, true Crime, you really should read And it. I f- And I just feel... Like a- high bar for other writers it is and he's a wonderful writer no matter what he writes he's a a good nonfiction writer it's not like he's a crime writer and that's the only thing he writes about because he wrote the one about going to extremes and he wrote the one about sarah palin which was going rogue before shortly before his death he also released a bunch of short ebooks true crime ebooks that were really good including one about a killer nurse in hampshire county massachusetts and I, because he's no longer with us,, no. and people hear a things and don't understand. I just feel like I can never say too often no. that Joe McGinnis was a great journalist. He was. and his book, Fatal Vision is great. It's worth reading. There's yes. nothing wrong with it, and i I agree. I highly recommend. And so that's our show for this week, yeah, and people can follow us on Twitter at. I was going to say cranky editor, but... Yeah, at, at, yeah, sure. At Crime and Stuff... I almost said groovy, too. <laughs> I know you did, I know. At Crime and Stuff, on Facebook at Crime and Stuff, our yeah. website, Crime and Stuff Online, and those of you who have been waiting breathlessly will be happy to know I've updated the More Stuff page. Oh, good, and we will have some more more and stuff. And we will have more and more stuff, more. because we need, from last week, Malaga, by the time this airs, that... And, again, we want to thank our latest Patreon supporters. If you want to support us... Maybe help us get some better equipment or just some better learning, so we don't have to redo episodes like we did with last week's. Yeah, you can find buttons to donate on Crime and Stuff online. Yeah, and you can find more stuff about us, and you about can my us on Patreon. Yeah. and stuff about my books, about Rebecca's art. Oh, yeah, come on, is. You're an artist. Say it. Own an it, Archie. baby. And until next week. i oh, will see ya. So I was just waiting. I'm just telling. Unless it's technical difficulties, then I'm not in the background. I'm just like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like Darth Vader. Yeah. Our Darth Vader episode. Well, also when I was like going, yeah, i <laughs> like <laughs> agreeing with you and stuff. It was weird. We're